Good evening. Thank you for coming to our celebration this evening. This is a very festive time. This is a, a special time to remember the Passover and the Lord's table. Passover is the most significant salvation story in the Older Testament. It is so fundamental to the Jewish story that at the very first Passover, Yahweh says, this is the beginning of our story together. You are my nation. This is day one, month one, year one. You are my people. It is a tremendous story. We're going to try to relive that story as a family called Grace Covenant Church. Those who love Jesus Christ, those who are part of his family. That night, the night we're going to celebrate is this overlap between the last Passover and the first communion. This day, this day is an unusual day that in that the, the Lord's or the, the Good Friday upper room experience is actually on the day of Passover, full moon, the first day, the first month, the first year. 2,000 years ago, Jesus called his friends and his family, those that loved him, into an upper room and said, let's do Passover together. Let's relive what it's like to be delivered from bondage, from slavery, from evil, where God made a way out miraculously. God saved his people, wait, through a lamb through the blood of a lamb. How does that happen? How is a lamb the means of escape? Here's a passage. The, the blood will be assigned to you on the houses where you are. And, you, when, and, and when I see that blood, I will pass over you. No destruction, destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh, the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Jesus' audience that he had in, in the upper room, they were all Jewish followers. They, they all loved Yahweh. They all experienced Passover. They knew the Passover night by heart. They loved it as a child. They loved it as an adult. It's a festive event. It's a night of celebration. It's a night to remember what God did, all that God did. It's a night to remember the entire experience. And so on the Passover Seder, as many senses that can be involved in this experience are used because God wants us to remember vividly. He wants us to smell the cooking of this lamb. He wants us to taste the fullness of this experience. He wants us to feel the fear of the plagues, his judgment hand upon those who mock him. He wants us to experience the 10th plague, the plague of death and the plague of salvation. That's Passover. And Jesus will lead this Passover in a way that's never been done before. It's a different kind of Passover. It's the fullness of what Passover is. How is this night different than any other night? We'll see. Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav B'tzivanu Shel Shabbat Pesach. And please join me now as we translate together in English. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by his word and in whose name we light the Shabbat and Passover festival lights. 
Barahuet Adonai Hamvorach. And together again, blessed the Lord, who, who is, is blessed. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Again, blessed be the Lord, who is blessed for all eternity. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melacholam, Asher Baharbanu Mikol Hamim, Venatanlanu Et Torso, Baruch Ata Adonai Nosein Ha Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King, King of the, the universe, universe, who has chosen, chosen us from among all, all the nations and given, given us his Torah. Torah. Blessed, Blessed are, are you, Lord, who gives the Torah. Torah. Let's stand and sing this together. Holy, holy, holy. In Exodus, recorded there is the single greatest redemptive story in human history until the Messiah, the promised one, actually comes. Seventy-two Jews make their way to Egypt, a small clan, and in 400 years, they are given the greatest part of the most prosperous land in Egypt known as Goshen. And prosper they did. From 72 to 2 to 3 million people now in Egypt living 
in protection because it was a Jew, it was Joseph that helped save millions of people because he trusted God in the sovereignty of his life. And then there arose a, Joseph, or a, a Pharaoh who did not know of Joseph. And he looked at these millions of people as a threat that maybe, maybe one of the enemies of Egypt would woo them over and use them to overthrow the nation of Egypt itself. And so he enslaves them and brings them into a servitude that is unimaginable for us. These men and women are beaten unto death. And even their family are put in positions to be the place of authority to do the discipline. And while they continue to multiply, God continues to prosper them. They continue to expand in their numbers. Pharaoh realizes that he must do something more. And he enforces and makes a law that mothers would drown their newborn sons in the great Nile River. Like I said, it's beyond our ability to understand or imagine. The Jews cry out. And Jesus probably read this passage in the book of Exodus. It says, Yahweh said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because they are of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Yahweh sends Moses to go to Pharaoh a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. And Moses says this, Yahweh has said this, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And this Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I would obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? I don't know Yahweh, no. I will not let his people go. And so the Lord sends an introduction. This is his formal debutante to all of creation. Who is Yahweh? I am Yahweh. And he sends 10 plagues to Egypt. He brings chaos into all of the order. He brings weakness into all the power and the greatness of this powerful and great country. Each time, each plague is attacking a god of Egypt. And he says at each plague, I am Yahweh, let my people go. The plagues may have looked something like this.
nine plagues. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? No, I will not let his people go. If I see you again, Moses, it'll be death. And so was the announcement of the 10th plague. The 10th plague is a plague of death. That the firstborn male of every family, of every uh, dominion of livestock would be lost on that night. God's judgment, his angel of death would come upon Egypt and all the surrounding lands and he would take the life of every firstborn male. Unless, unless people would take a lamb, a lamb that was without blemish. They would study this lamb for four days. They would name the lamb. They would make this lamb family. And after four days, they would take the lamb and slaughter the lamb. And they would put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and the lentil outside of their house. For every family, there must be a lamb. And on that day, on the night of judgment of the 10th plague, when Yahweh saw the blood of the lamb on that doorpost, he would cause that angel of justice to pass over them. And the firstborn male would be saved. It's the 10th plague. Listen carefully. Follow these directions. Make sure you do this right. You don't have to understand it. You just need to obey it. And you will live. And you will be set free. The 10th plague. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Tell me of all my 
How is this night different than any other night? That's how the Seder starts. But this night, it was different than all other Seders. All the Passovers, the 1,500 years or so that preceded this, the Passover celebration was a celebration. And it was for everyone that was in the upper room, less one. Of course, the disciples, those who loved him, those who followed him, look forward every year to share the Passover with Jesus, the great teacher. Right? But while they were enjoying this ceremony that reminded them of the freedom that they have, how on that night, day one, month one, year one, that was the time where Yahweh God says, you are my people. And it would be the blood of a lamb on the frame of a door that would save you from the judgment of God and his holiness. But on that night, the third Passover celebration they had together, Jesus knew and the angels knew that he was that Passover lamb. He would be the fulfillment of Passover. This is the last Passover. This is the first communion. It was a new day, a new month, a whole new year. And God would say to those who followed the, by faith, what he commanded them to do and what to trust in, they would become his people. But on this night, Jesus' soul was very heavy. It had to have been. He was going to drink from the cup of wrath, the wrath of the holiness of God, where he takes on the sins of the world. Because God had looked down again. He had seen their suffering. He had heard their weeps from, from their sins. And he came down. As we remember this night, the upper room night, let's look at the Passover Seder in the context of how Jesus must have felt, what Jesus must have meant. In our experience, the, the bitter herbs in the Passover, the bitter herbs, they touch our tongue and they remind us of the bitterness of the slavery that the Jews endured under, under a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph, the injustice that they had to endure the slavery that they experienced. And in that taste of bitterness, we are to be reminded that this is not the way it was meant to be. This is not what God has for us in a perfect wor world, in his perfect will. This suffering, this injustice, when we taste that bitter herb, let's remind ourselves that God desires to make this right. There's a winter and some winter seems like it is though there's never a spring, always winter and never Christmas, always death and never a life. Some of you know that experience. Some of you are living a long winter. When you taste the bitterness of these herbs, be reminded that God hears you weeping. He knows of your suffering and hear this, do not grow weary in doing good. For if you persevere, there will be a spring for you if you do not give up. Do not grow weary in doing good when the bitter herbs are on the taste of your tongue. As we take in your cups, we're going to have a moment of meditation and then we'll take the bitter herb together. And I want you to meditate on this before we take together. What is your slavery? Are, are you enslaved to something? Is something telling you the way to live? Is something over you, keeping you from being who God made you to be? He, it, look at your life. Is this the way it was meant to be? And, and then another part is, how's winter? Do not grow weary in the winter. Spring is coming. Let's meditate on the possibility of what our slavery might be or how long our winter might be going. We'll take the bitter herbs in just a second.
Lord, there are people here that are crying out that you would set them free, that you would miraculously be the power that they could enjoy so that they would not be in slavery. And there are some here, Lord, that they have suffered well in a long winter. And I'd ask that in this experience, they would be given hope. They would be given endurance, that they would see that that suffering brings about perseverance and the fullness of who you want them to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bitter herb. The Seder includes the lamb. Cooked over an open fire on a crossbar so none of the bones would be broken. It's a perfect lamb. It's without blemish. And the blood of that lamb would protect us from the judgment of the death angel. Now, let's stop and think for a second. Okay, what? How could a lamb divert this angel of wrath? How could a, a lamb be stronger than an angel? How could blood make any difference on this? Can I ask you this? Do you have to know to obey? If God commands you to do something, do you have to understand it before you implement, before you follow? Is, is obedience contingent on understanding? Because this first Passover, it makes no sense. It's not meant to make sense. It will be fulfilled later, but that's the nature of faith in the context of obedience, in the expression of living out the laws of God that are designed to protect us, to live in the boundaries of God's law. A law, it's a gift. And Jesus, in this moment, knows that he is that lamb. And in that moment, he has so much peace and tranquility knowing his next 24 hours that his disciples don't even uh, acknowledge that. That this, this lamb, it will be led to the slaughter and he won't scream and he won't protest. And he will be put on a crossbar. His bones will not be broken. And he does that so that we won't. We take, before we take the lamb together, Let's meditate for just a minute on obedience, on Jesus' obedience to the Father and the obedience of every person that participated in the Passover that first night where children were asking, spouses were asking, how are we going to make this work? Why, does, why are we doing this? None of this makes sense. And the answer is we just do what we're told. We obey. He is Yahweh. We are his people. We'll just do that. Could you think about if that's a value that you have? And if not, maybe confess that. Let's think about that before we take the lamb. Lord, you are a great and wonderful God, and your wisdom transcends anything that we could hope to know. How can a young person keep his way pure? How can any man or woman keep his way pure? By knowing and meditating and obeying the laws of God. We are grateful for the law that you've given us. Lord, I repent of times where I have 
debated whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, whether it was a convenient thing or not, whether I wanted to do it. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. All these things are in the face of Yahweh, the great and all-knowing God, sovereign, powerful. So, Lord, I repent, and I ask that you forgive me. Lord, I am grateful for the lamb that was slaughtered so that I wouldn't have to be, that he took on the wrath that I deserve. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take this lamb together. The bread was specifically to be without yeast. And the reason is, is because it would take too much time for the the yeast to have its effect on the dough and to rise and we have no time. We gird our loins, put on your tennis shoes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> judgment, <coughs> judgment is coming. And so this bread was without yeast. Later, yeast, because of its <coughs> power. One more time, hold on. Because of yeast power to infect, you, you can put a little piece of yeast on dough and it inf infiltrates and it infects the whole dough. And it became a symbol of sin. <clears throat> and so, sorry, one more time. So Jesus would say, this bread without yeast represents my body. It will be torn. It'll be ripped apart for you. Let's remember that Jesus without sin. Let's meditate on that for just a moment. spend a moment meditating on our sin. Lord, I ask uh, that your spirit would bring to mind our sin so that we might bring that to this throne of grace, <clears throat> this offering, this covering, this ransom payment. And we, we take this bread with that in mind, in Jesus' name. Let's pass out the cup. <clears throat> Passover meal, as you get the cups passed to you, there are actually four glasses of wine that you drink. That's why it's a big celebration. <clears throat> That's why people are so festive. That's why people expected great things on every Passover, but especially this night. <clears throat> but the four, the four cups are, one is, I will bring you out. The next cup is, I will deliver you. <clears throat> the next cup is, I will redeem you. And the last one is, <clears throat> I will take you as my people. That sounds <clears throat> familiar, right? Jesus takes that cup and says, this is my blood. And no one understands. What does that mean? Jesus is, excuse me.
Jesus is the fulfillment of the blood covenant made to Abraham and to Israel and the new covenant. Let's meditate on the fulfillment of the promises of God, the consistency of his trustworthiness and the joy that we experience because when he makes a promise, he is assured to keep that promise. It had to be, it had to be the blood of Jesus because the blood of bulls and rams cannot pacify the righteousness of the holiness of God. It is the only way that God could be both just and the one who justifies. And so Jesus knew it had to be him. And so he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. The cup the blood of the new covenant. Now God's spirit will have a safe place in the souls of those who cover the door of their souls with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you will be righteous and now the spirit of God can be in you. The fulfillment of all the fantasies of Old Testament saints that the Spirit of God would live with them, it would visit them. He would visit them, but he could not live with them. This changes that. The cup of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's drink to that. Jesus takes the Passover Seder and says that it was told to do this until and says, now is until, and says, you continue to do this until I return. This, the last supper, the Lord's table, the upper room experience, <clears throat> this will give you hope in times of bitterness. While I've, we've been trying to grasp what this must be like, what it must have been like for Jesus, because for 1500 years, it, it was a celebration. It was a joyous time. It was like no other night. It, there was no night like that. 
But this particular night was different from those. And it says in Mark's gospel that those who loved him in that room, they were bewildered. They were confused. They didn't understand when he said, this is my body, which will be delivered up for you. He left the script. This is my blood. They didn't know what that meant. They were told they didn't understand. The Passover meal was, was light. It was full of laughter and celebration and singing and then sleeping. <clears throat> but not this time. This time, after their song, Jesus took them and went down a valley and up a hill to the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> the garden where the first Adam began the story of redemption. This is where the second Adam will end that story. And it's the beginning of the end of his life. And he prays, oh, Father, if there's another way, there is no other way. And then he says, thy will be done. And it is. That garden, every depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying and the men are sleeping, it's always de depicted with a sense of ominous fear. It's as though the plagues have returned and found them themselves on the shoulders of Jesus while he wrestles with God and his free will to be the second Adam and the fulfillment of what it means to obey. Thy will be done. Evil has now been set free. It is unleashed and untethered. It will have its way with Jesus and Jesus will weep blood. Now, if you would, can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of his followers, his disciples? Let's just say Peter, for example. Three years they spend with him. Three years they enjoy him. He causes them to know themselves like they'd never hoped to know. They had feared these things about themselves. And Jesus shows them who, who they are and shows them that God still loves them and he still loves them. The things they experienced, all the hope they had in Jesus, then from the garden, to the, the trials, they're thinking, he'll get out of this. He disappeared once. He's done this before when people are trying to attack him. It doesn't matter. That's okay. Wait a minute. It's getting worse. Then the torturing. What? How can this be? Then the confrontations with Peter himself. Aren't you one of his? You talk like him. Yeah, you have his same accent and vocabulary. Denying Christ, running to the four corners of Jerusalem, and his death. His death, his final trial, right? You saved others, save yourself. He could call down a legion of angels, start this whole thing all over again, but he obeyed the Father all the way. Over his head was a statement of truth in four languages. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was guilty of that. That's all he was guilty of. And when he was buried, can you imagine what, what would you do? How would you feel? What would you think if you were Peter? Now what? Now what? Everything you'd hoped for, everything you'd expected, generations of your family telling stories of some promised one coming. What do you make of this? After the panic, after all the crying, right? After you wake up, what do you think? What are you to do? How do you, God is dead? Is that how you come to this? God is dead? Someone much later is gonna say, God is dead and we have killed him. Does that make any sense? That means evil is unquenched. Evil has the ultimate power. Death continues to reign. It always wins. Because he can't live with that. Okay, so God is what, weak? Evil is stronger than good? That God would love to help fix this, but he can't? There's no hope there. Think of what, what would Peter be thinking on Saturday? Who do you say that I am? 
Well, you know, some people say this and some people say that. Yeah, Peter, you, you tell me, who do you say that I am? Well, I say you're the one. I say you're the promised one, the Messiah, the one that's been expected. You are what we've been waiting for. But now, <laughs> you're dead. I'd say you're dead. Think of the things that Peter just saw. He saw a boy that was deaf healed immediately. He saw an old man that was born blind, and everybody's running around trying to figure out why did he deserve blindness. And Jesus heals him and says, the reason he was born blind is so that I could heal him so that the Father would receive glory. And then he says this, wait for this, listen, your sins are forgiven. What kind of Jewish rabbi would say that? G Peter heard that all day Saturday. All day Saturday, he's playing this back. How can I continue to live with this complexity here that he is dead now? Think of the things Peter had actually done and experienced. On two occasions, he fed thousands of men and women with a boxed lunch, one boxed lunch. He saw Jesus stand up in a boat and tell the winds and the waves the way they ought to be, and they did immediately. Peter walked on water. You can't, he can't unremember that. He can't forget that that ever happened. There was a time where he was on a mountain and there was a supernatural, miraculous, fear-filled moment where Jesus becomes illuminated, bright as the sun, Shekinah glory, and and Moses and Elijah are looking up to him and praising him as being the fulfillment of all the promises of the Older Testament. Who do you say that I am? I say you're everything that God has ever promised would come. You're the David that David couldn't be. You're the lamb that was meant to be. You're the, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that would rescue us from out of our poverty. You're all those things and now you're dead. What is, think of, all day Saturday, all day Saturday, it's, it's the Sabbath. He can't do anything but think. What is he supposed to do now? Tomorrow's the first day of the week, Sunday, first day of the week. What's he going to do? Go back to fishing? Hey, honey, I'm home. Uh, I'm going to go back to work. And I'm really sorry about the last three years. And I got another dead Messiah, and I'm not going to chase those dreams anymore. As a matter of fact, I will not dream again. And he's out on the boat, and he's fishing. And you remember the last time he went fishing? Yeah, Jesus told him to fish differently, and it swamped his boat. How can he ever fish again without remembering Jesus challenged him to become a fisher of men? Jesus changed his life. He made his life brighter. Every sunrise, every sunset, and everything in between. Everything was different. It's as though a person born colorblind could see again, see colors for the first time. Je Jesus did that to him. And now what's Peter to do? What could you do without hope? Could you live a noble lie? A noble lie? For how long? How busy could you stay? If we just stay distracted long enough, maybe we'll get to that grave. Peter couldn't do that. How do you live without hope? How long can you last? How long could you last? Friday night, you watch Jesus die. Saturday, you do what your culture and tradition and your religion has taught you to do. You rest. You think. You meditate on the Lord. You praise God for who He is. But this Saturday, you spend that time just wondering, how are you supposed to live the Sabbath? Ah, uh, Sabbath. You know, I didn't know what Sabbath meant until Jesus came into my life. Peter may have, may have had 150 Sabbaths with Jesus, each one better than the one before. Not this Sabbath, not this Saturday. 
Let's think about what life would be like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the men or the women that loved him and Jesus loved them, called them by their first name, and then watched him be betrayed, his trial, his beatings, his death. How long can they live with this confusion? How long can they live without hope? Here's a psalm when you go to Jerusalem. And at one of the sites where Jesus may have been held between his beatings, in this, it's called a cistern. It's an underground canteen. And he's lowered into this darkness where there is no room for hope. And when you visit there, they ask you to read Psalm 88, a psalm that Jesus may have recited in this time and Peter may have remembered on Saturday. Here's Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer, listen to my cry, for my life is full of troubles and death draws near. I am as good as dead like a strong man with no strength left. They've left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down with wave after wave you have engulfed me. You've driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I'm in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help, O Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? O oh Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. O oh Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I've been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They've engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. stand and sing.
Here's what we'd like to do. We'd like you to experience what it might have been like just a little to have been one of the followers of Jesus Christ on that long Saturday. You can go quite a few days without food and then your body won't work anymore. You can go quite a few, well, just actually just a few minutes without air. I don't know. I don't think a soul can live a second without hope. How does a soul live without hope? How does a thing within us that defines us live without a tomorrow? And I think the greater you knew and understood who Jesus was when he lived amongst those people, the greater the loss that was experienced on Friday and Saturday. And so let's try to do this. I know it's another day, but try tomorrow to spend just a few moments to feel the utter despair that must have been to the people that saw their Savior die. The hope not of freedom from Rome and slavery and hard times, but freedom from sin, that they would have eternity with God and they could know God and enjoy God. The Spirit of God could live within their souls, the fulfillment of the new, of the new covenant. And all of that is lost. Try to live all night, all day Saturday without any future, without any hope. And then maybe we meet back on Sunday and try to make sense out of this, how we could find something to give us courage to wake up and, and live each day, one day at a time, finding, trying to find a new hope Maybe a new Messiah comes, maybe something else. But let's find the despair of bad Friday, evil Friday, the Friday where death wins, where misery is the conqueror, where hopelessness invades in a whole new way at such a deeper level. Let's try to experience that so that we might meet back on Sunday, see what happens. What we'd like you to do is exit not just the worship center, and the auditorium itself, but also the lobby, and then in silence. Let's just leave together in silence with this darkness of this feeling, of this truth that appears to be that death has won. Death has a sting. Death is a victor. Okay? Let's you know what? Let's pray that God's spirit would give us that kind of understanding so that we might experience maybe something else on Sunday. Lord Jesus, oh, the darkness. Who can ascend unless he first descends? What were you doing? Where were you on that Friday, on Saturday? Lord, I'd ask that you would help us experience that your spirit would help us experience the distraught, the fear, the confusion that maybe even the angels had on this day, on Friday, on Saturday. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us like feel the fullness of what it would be a lover of Jesus Christ, a follower of his that ate with him and laughed with him and cried with him and then suddenly to see it all taken away. Lord, I'd ask that you would give us the hopelessness and despair of a life without you and a life without your power, a life without your love, a life without your providence. God, so that we might experience maybe something else in a whole new way. How long can a soul live without hope? I don't know, maybe two and a half days. I don't know, maybe three, maybe three maybe three. Lord, would you meet us on Sunday? Because we don't know why we would want to live on Sunday. So would you meet us on Sunday? But until then, give us this existential deep understanding of life without you and any hope of knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.